take our Bibles tonight and let's go to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter number 2, please. 2 Timothy, chapter number 2. And uh, I uh, just want to sort of finish up this this thought that we've sort of been focusing in on the last several Sunday nights on uh, on evangelism and uh, really just the gospel and uh, trying to uh, win a world to Christ while we have the opportunity that is in front of us. And I want to just kind of finish this thought we've been building for this friend day. And I thought the Lord would uh, maybe have us to go back to our Proverbs series and, and uh, in fact, got kind of going in that just a little bit and just felt like the Lord was impressing us to give one more message along this particular theme. I don't really have a title for this little mini-series, but, uh, but uh, I, I will identify the title here in the message in just a moment. So 2 Timothy chapter number 2, and if you'll look with me in verse number 1, please. 2 Timothy chapter number 2, verse number 1. Very familiar passage of Scripture. The Bible says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses... The same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully." If you're in the habit of marking your Bible, there's a tiny little phrase that I want to call to your attention here this evening, and it'll be the, it'll be the title of our message. <clears throat> and that phrase is found in verse number two, where the Bible says, the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, here's the phrase, the same, the same, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. I don't know if you are aware just what a privilege it is for me to serve as pastor here of this church. You know, uh, October, I don't know who, who coined this term. I don't know where it came from or where it started. It's sort of like we've got a day for everything, right? There was recently a National Sons Day and a National Daughters Day. And, you know, who knows? I, I, I think there's a day for just about everything. But somebody at some point decided that October should be a pastor appreciation month. And um, again, I don't know where that came from. I don't know how long that's been going on. Uh, but I do know that, uh, that, that uh, this church has been a blessing to me and to the other pastors, little cards and notes that we've received or text messages or maybe even just some expressions and that sort of thing. But the truth of the matter is you may say, oh, it's Pastor Appreciation Month. We want to express our appreciation to the pastor. And I just want to say tonight how much I appreciate you. As a, as a pastor, I uh, really don't have much to do unless there's people to pastor and people to work with and people to minister to, and your faithfulness is such a blessing and such an encouragement uh, to me. And um, I just want to publicly say tonight, thank you. Thank you for the privilege of allowing me to serve in this capacity and uh, minister here in this place. I mean, for me to, to pastor the church that I grew up in is really just um, an, an incredible thing from my perspective. Um, I think to myself to, that I get to stand on the same platform that Roy Thompson stood on and, uh, and preached for all of those years. To me, is a great honor to, <clears throat> to stand at the same pulpit that, uh, that my dad stood behind for almost 24 years and to preach in this place and to 
and to preach from the same Bible that these men have preached from and other uh, Christian leaders have preached from and to pastor some of the same people that they, uh, that they pastored is an incredible honor uh, that I know, I know I am not worthy of. I'm reminded of what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 8 where he was talking about how God had given him a mystery to steward and he said in that text, he said that about himself that he was less than the least of all saints. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I'm not even the least of all saints. I am less than the least of all saints. And to be very frank and to be very honest with you, in many respects, uh, I feel very similarly. Why God uh, chose me and allowed me to do this, I will never know. Um, There is what you know about me, right? And uh, you know some things about me. Uh, perhaps maybe more about me because I maybe share some things with you and try to be transparent from time to time. So there's what you know about me. And then there's what I know about me. And what I know about me is more than what you know about me, right? I let you in on a little secret that happened in my life earlier, uh, earlier in days gone by this morning. And I told you a little story about some trouble that I got into. And I just got to tell you, that's just the tip of the iceberg, uh, of folks that have had to show me uh, mercy throughout my life. But then I thought, thought about this. There's what you know about me. There's what I know about me. And then there's what God knows about me. And God knows everything about me. God knows things about me that I don't even know about myself. And, um, and, that, and that God would, uh, would, would allow me to uh, serve in, 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 these capa- in this capacity uh, is, really, is really an incredible thing. And it is a sign of God's work and God's grace in the life of an individual. I have no doubt, I have no doubt uh, that God choosing me uh, to serve here is, is in some respects, it is an opportunity to live out the scripture that tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter number one, verse 27, that God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. And here's the key phrase in that, in that text, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's really what it's all about. God chooses people that the world would never choose. Many times God chooses people that they would never even choose themselves to serve in that capacity. And God does it. God does it so that no flesh should glory in God's presence. God chooses the weak things and the things that are despised uh, to accomplish his work. You know, I'm thinking to myself that there are many things that are changing in our world today. Technology is evolving. Worldviews are progressing further away from biblical truth. In biblical themes. The political scene is constantly shifting. Education seems to be altering as well. I think to myself that even, even maybe visiting a community or a neighborhood that you used to live in, things are constantly changing. Maybe things are deteriorating or maybe that neighborhood is experiencing a revival and they're building new things and things that used to be there aren't there anymore or things that used to be in one condition are sort of worn down and sort of no longer what they once were. Things are always, always evolving. I'm thinking to myself, you know, maybe new roads, new houses, new businesses being developed. Because I say there is one constant. 
There is one thing that you can count on, and that is this. The work that God has given us to do does not change. It, it, it is the same. The Bible says the, in verse number two, the same commit thou to faithful men. You know, I'm thinking to myself that we may develop new ways to get the same things done that have been done for all of these years. New ways to get the job done. You do know that the concept of Sunday school is really not that old of a concept when you consider the history of the world, right? I'm given to understand, I think the first Sunday school showed up maybe in the mid-1800s uh, in, uh, in London, England, some of the larger cities in the world. And uh, I'm given to understand that they began because many of these children were street children and they were not getting a proper education. And so the idea of a Sunday school was the religious community reaching out uh, to these children and trying to pour into them uh, one day a week at the very least. And of course, from there, we developed you know classes and, and programs to educate and to grow the church family. Um, that's, a, that's a new thing. That's something that's new, but enables us, listen, enables us to get the same thing done, to preach and proclaim the gospel. I'm thinking to myself, the bus ministry. The bus ministry is, I would, I would guess, you know, maybe, you know, maybe 70, 80 years old, the idea of taking a bus and picking up. I, 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 don't, I don't know when the bus ministry first started, but I'm given to understand that, that, that one of the first pioneering bus ministries ever was, was in the church that our church was started out. The Akron Baptist Temple. And I'm given to understand that Dr. Dallas Billington, he would rent city buses that would run normal city routes and he would send them out and to pick up people and to bring them uh, into church. And, and, and so you know, you know that, that the Apostle Paul never, never envisioned a bus ministry, never even thought of such a thing, a thing on four wheels that would pick up a bunch of people and bring them to church. But, but it's, a, it's a good thing that we can use to do the same thing that he was doing, which was preaching the gospel. Uh, youth ministry. You know, youth ministries are not all that old in which we take this targeted group of people and we try to pour into them. I'm thinking of youth camps and retreats and different things along those lines. I'm thinking of, um, I'm thinking of the websites and live streaming and all of these things are fairly, are fairly new, but they enable us to accomplish the same things that Paul and that Timothy were trying to accomplish in their day. But can I say that while these things are new, the, the way that we might get the job done is new, uh, the work is always the same. And we touched on it last week. What is the work? It is to preach the gospel, it is to baptize converts, and it is to disciple those who have been saved. We had four baptized this morning. You know what needs to happen? Somebody, somebody needs to get on those four people and begin to disciple them. Because they've been saved, I met with, a, uh, with, with two of them yesterday. Uh, we're, we're saved here in this church. Walk the aisle and we're saved in this church. And now want to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. And then what's the next step? The next step is teaching them to observe all things whatsoever he has commanded us. And so we have a responsibility. That's the same work. That's the exact same work that Paul and Timothy were doing all those years ago. Now this is an unusual church. Um, we, we perhaps don't recognize it because this is home, but it, it's true. This is an unusual church. Um, I, 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 I would just tell you, you know, that a lot of times we, because familiarity, you know, sometimes it breeds contempt, or maybe we could say familiarity, you know, causes things that should be special, maybe not to be as special as they should be to us. But I would, um, I would just tell you that what God does here and the things that happen here and the, the church that exists in this place is a very unusual and a very rare thing. 
Um, it's unusual for a church to only have three pastors in 64 years. It's unusual for a church to never go a Sunday without a pastor. It's unusual for a church to have this many people present on a Sunday night. That's an unusual thing. doesn't happen in a lot of places. It's unusual for a church to give as generously as this church gives. Most of you are working every day and you're, you're living paycheck to paycheck and you're just doing enough to get by and yet God has blessed this ministry abundantly through your sacrificial giving. It's unusual for a church to support the missionaries the way that this church supports missionaries. And the giving and the fact that as a church, I think we support 180 or so missionaries on a month-by-month basis and, and that we're able to meet all of those obligations and all of those responsibilities, an incredible thing. It is unusual for a church to be as friendly as this church is. It just is. I hear that all the time. People saying this church is so, so friendly that people remember my name and, and, uh, and they greet me and they say hello to me and they try to help me. And that, to me, is such an encouragement, such a blessing. And you know, I was in a meeting recently. We were talking about some of these things and it dawned on me. I was struck by this thought. And are you ready for it? Here's the thought. All of these things, that, these unusual things, are things that I have inherited. I thought about that for just a minute. I was overwhelmed by that thought. In other words, I, I, cannot, I cannot stand uh, before you and take any credit for any of those things at all. I mean, I mean, somebody, you know, some, we might have a guest preacher, sometimes, that, you know, standing up here on the, boy, this is an amazing place. Boy, this is incredible. And I'd like to be, I'd like, you know, the human side to be like, yeah, yeah, I'm doing a great job here. But you know as well as I do, I didn't have anything to do with any of this. I mean, honestly, this, this is what was, was handed off to me. This is what was given to me. And I'll just be very frank with you. I'm praying and I'm asking the Lord, Lord, help me not to mess the thing up. Lord, help me just to, just to stay out of your way and, and, and just to do the absolute best job that I can in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I don't want to mess up what you're doing in this place. Here's, here's, a, here's a phrase. This is a great phrase. I, I am reaping tonight in fields that I have not sown in. I mean, honestly, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't plow the the field of, of Cleveland Baptist Church. That was done by men prior to me who worked really, really hard and sacrificed. And, and I inherited all of those things. And here's what I want you to know tonight. I want to see these things stay the same. But I also, listen, I also want to build upon them and I want to add to them as well. I want to take, I want to take a, a, a church that is really strong and I want to see it get stronger. But I also want to recognize and understand that, that even in strong churches, there's going to be weaknesses. There's going to be areas that need to be addressed, that need to be strengthened. And, and I, want to, I want to do what I can to try to strengthen those things and build upon what has been given. Now, many people grow up in a, in a place. It doesn't have to be a place just like this, but a lot of people grow up in different places. And when they, when they get older, they disdain or they, they despise their heritage or their upbringing. We, we've all met people like that. That I mean, I mean, they just, they almost have to grit their teeth to, you know, to talk about their parents or, you know, the church that they went to or the school that they were enrolled in and, and all of the things that they saw wrong with that particular place and those particular people. And I just want to pause for a moment tonight to say, you know, I, I have to work real hard to, to try to resist judging that attitude. Um, because, because, you know, it is very possible. I don't know everybody's experience. 
And it's very possible that perhaps there was some things that were done that were unfair, that weren't right, or, or, or were, uh, you know, were, were um, out of bounds, or whatever the case might be. There may be, there may be legitimate reasons why people look back with animosity and bitterness and hatred in their heart. I, I don't think it's wise to hold on to that. I think it's wise to get rid of that. I think it's good for your health and certainly good for your spiritual well-being. But I'm not dismissing the fact that there may be legitimate reasons why someone looks back and they don't have hardly any positive memories or good things to say about how they were raised. But I want you to know something. I, uh, I, I'm not going to judge those people, but I, my experience was wholly different. My experience was totally different. I was blessed to grow up in this place. I have, I have blessed memories of my childhood and, and my teenage years. And that's not, to, that's not to say that things were always done exactly as they should have been. It's not to say that there weren't maybe some things that, you know, like, oh, man, we don't do that anymore. It's a good thing we don't do that anymore. We don't say that anymore. We don't, you know. But, but the totality of things, I look back, I say, I was blessed. I was blessed to grow up in this place. And you know my heart's desire? My heart's desire is to take the same thing that I was given, that I was blessed with, and I want to pass that same thing to my children. And if the Lord allows us all to live long enough to my grandchildren and maybe even my great-grandchildren. That is the goal. That really is what's being played out here in this verse. Now, I want you to see that there's a clear pattern that's found in verse number two. And this is just by way of introduction. But this clear pattern, if followed, will enable us to accomplish this task that God has placed before us. Now, notice the pattern identifies these essentials. Number one, there is faith learned, confirmed, and embraced. There is faith learned, confirmed, and and embrace. Look what he says in, in verse number two. He says, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. Now Paul wrote that Timothy had heard and learned some things from him about the faith. And then I, I want you to know that the book of 2 Timothy reveals that he did not just learn some things through the apostle Paul, but that he was blessed according to chapter number one and verse number five to grow up with a godly mother and a godly grandmother. What a treasure that is. Now, the Bible tells us that Timothy's father was a Greek. We, 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 don't, we don't completely know what his spiritual condition is, but we assume based on the fact that his father was a Greek, so he was a Gentile, and the fact that Paul only identifies his mother and his grandmother, that Paul's, Paul's dad, or excuse me, Timothy's dad was probably not a believer. And that's a tough thing for a young man to overcome to have a dad who does not live out the gospel, but it can be overcome, can it? It certainly can be, and here's one of the best ways it can be overcome, to have a mom and a grandmother with genuine, authentic, real faith. And that's what Timothy had. Paul says, when I call to, when I call to remembrance, uh, verse number uh, five, the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. He goes on to say in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, that Timothy, he says, you had been taught the scriptures from the time that you were a young man. Can I say that the best opportunity for the faith to be embraced is when people see the truth of it lived out in the lives of those who are teaching it. Now, you've heard me say an awful lot about being real and being genuine and being authentic, right, in our faith. And, and the fact that one of the worst things that we could do is we can say, do as I say, not as I do. As it relates to our children and to our grandchildren, the people that are coming behind us in this place. 
In other words, for us to stand up and for us to hold them to a standard and say, well, you have to do this and you have to do that, and yet we not do that same thing in our own lives. That is, listen, that is death. That is death to us carrying on the same thing from generation to generation. When our children see that inconsistency in us, they say, you know, listen, if it's not good enough for you, why should it be good enough for me? And many times they walk away from that and they want no part of that whatsoever. Timothy saw unfeigned faith in his maternal influences there in his home, and he saw real, genuine uh, faith in his greatest male spiritual influence, which was the Apostle Paul, or we might say the church. So Timothy really had a well-rounded faith uh, experience in that at home, the faith was lived out in mama and grandmother, and at church, the faith was lived out in the person of the Apostle Paul, and no doubt others that he came into contact with. Now, you have, to, you have to imagine that at one time or another, Timothy probably happened upon a hypocritical Christian at, at some point, but the consistency and faithfulness of these others counteracted any hypocrisy he saw in somebody else. And because the faith was real in these individuals, then it was confirmed in his own life, and it was embraced. And can I say this? And listen, we will never win. We will never win our lost family and friends so long as our faith isn't real. It isn't transformative in our own lives. Notice there's a second thought, though, in this pattern. That is not only faith learned and confirmed and embraced, but then we see, secondly, faithful men identified and invested in. Again, he says, the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same, the same commit thou to faithful men. That's interesting to me. Remember we said a couple of weeks ago that Andrew, as he was assessing who he's going to give the gospel to, remember we said that he prioritized his family first. He, he went to his own brother first. First thing that he did. And here we, find a, here we find a similar theme, don't we? We find that the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, the Apostle Paul said, listen, you take what you've been given and you, you pour, you pour that in to other faithful men. He said, if you, listen, if the gospel's gonna go forward, then Timothy, you're gonna have to take what you've learned, what you've confirmed, and what you've embraced, and you need to pour it into others. But listen, not just anybody, not just anybody. Notice he said, he said listen, you take, you take this precious treasure and, and, and you commit it to faithful men. Now, I, I think to myself that Christ taught a similar pattern or maybe he, we should say he exemplified a similar pattern, didn't he? Because as we think about the, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, we discover that um, he ministered to thousands in a public way, didn't he? I mean, you know, he would, he would travel from place to place, and the multitudes would come, and he'd preach to them, and he'd heal their sick, and he'd spend some time with them. But you know as well as I do that he really invested. He really poured himself into the twelve. There's, there's, there's no way, there's no way that one person can pour themselves into hundreds or even thousands of people. And so what we have to do, if we're going to really be effective, is we have to, we have to, find, we have to find faithful men. Maybe, maybe seven, eight, nine, ten. Lord Jesus Christ, he took 12 and he poured into them. He invested in them. I think in some respects, we more than likely are going to have to do the same thing. If we're going to, if, if we're going to get the gospel to advance, to go forward, uh, we, we're, going to have to, we're going to have to find certain people and say, listen, that's, that's, that's my Timothy right there. That's the young man that I am going to 
pour my life into. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be an accountability partner for him, and I'm going to be a soul-winning partner with him, and I'm going to spend time with him, and I'm going to develop a relationship with him, and I'm going to pour the things that I know into him. And I'm thinking to myself, some of you have been around here for a while, and probably all of you that have been around here for a while can think of someone who did that for you. Perhaps maybe it was a parent. Some of you, you didn't grow up in a Christian home. You didn't get saved until maybe you were in early adult years. And someone, perhaps maybe someone in this church, took you and sort of threw their arm around you and said, you know what, I'm going to be like, an, I'm going to be like a Paul to you. And I'm going to pour myself into you. You know what that is? That's the pattern found in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 2. That is taking what we, have, what we have confirmed and what we have learned and what we have embraced and it is identifying and investing in other faithful men. So Christ, that was his pattern. Those 12 became, of course, 11, right? Because Judas betrayed the Lord. But those 11 would then invest themselves into other faithful men and the thing absolutely took off, didn't it? So that, so that in a certain Within a, probably about 100 years, I mean, pretty much the whole world had been evangelized. The world knew who Jesus was, and they didn't have all of the advantages and all of the things at their disposal that, that we have. And God did a great, incredible work through these men. So here's the question. Who are you investing in spiritually? In other words, who is your Timothy? Everyone, everyone in this room has been saved any length of time. If you're an adult in this, in this room, you ought to have somebody. You ought to have somebody that you're pouring into. Someone that you are investing in because that's the pattern that's found here. The things that we've heard, the things that we've learned, the things that we've confirmed and embraced, the same we are to commit, we are to identify, and we're to invest in faithful men. And then notice, notice the end of this thing. Notice thirdly, faithful men then carry the gospel to people places and times we never could. What it says at the end of verse number two, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Others. You know, every one of us have a circle of influence. And in other words, your circle of influence is, is totally different than mine is. And my circle of influence is totally different than yours is. This past Tuesday, I was in Dayton, Ohio for a preacher's fellowship meeting. And there's preachers all across the state of Ohio that I know, that I have a relationship with, that likely you've never heard of their name. You have no idea who they are. And you know, each one of those preachers represents men and communities and churches that they're ministering and that maybe we've never even hardly heard of. And we certainly, if we've heard of it, we don't know anybody that lives there. You start to think about circles of influence. And every one of you, on Tuesday, I was down in Dayton with some preachers, and you were who knows where. You were in the office, you were at the factory, you were at the mill, you were, you know, in the school, you were, you know, at the, at the office. Whatever the case might be, you were, you were meeting with people and you were interacting with people and you were rubbing shoulders with people that I have no idea who they are, but you know who they are. And here's the, here's the point. Uh, the Bible is very clear that if we're going to get the gospel to the world, we have to first of all learn it and embrace it and have confidence in it. And then we have to, we have to take it and we have to find someone that we can pour into. Understanding and knowing this, this person that I'm pouring into knows people that I'll never know. They have relationships with people that I'll never meet. Uh, they'll, they'll, they'll likely, listen, they'll likely live longer than I will live. Now think about that for a minute. And that's the idea, right? 
Paul would die before Timothy would. As far as we know, that's the case. Timothy would outlive the apostle Paul. So Timothy would minister to people and he would meet people long after Paul was gone. But the point is this, the ministry of Paul would live on because he had invested in someone who was taking the same things that he had preached and was pouring it into others. And that's how it works. So faithful men carry the gospel to people, places, and times we never could. It's the pattern for gospel influence. Can I say, listen, today we are preaching the same gospel that Paul and Timothy preached. And they ask the question, well, how did that happen? How in the world did that happen? It happened because this pattern was followed. What is found in 2 Timothy chapter number 2 in verse number 2 has been done over and over and over again in every generation. Now, there's no doubt that some generations have been more successful at it than others. There's no doubt that some generations have been more committed to it than other generations have been. But listen, this pattern has followed itself all the way down from this writing to where we are today. And you and I, listen, you and I sit in a church today and we enjoy some things today. We've inherited some things today because people have followed the pattern found in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 2. No question about it. Paul invested in Timothy. Timothy invests in others who invested in others and so on till you come to 2022 and you have a church like the Cleveland Baptist Church because, because of the, 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 the progression of ministry generation after generation. The same ministry of Paul and Timothy lives on today because of their willingness to embrace the faith, to identify and invest in faithful men who carried the gospel to people, places, and times they never could or they never would. Now, I want you to notice that, that, that I, I, want, I want to hurry through this tonight, but there are three key follow-up thoughts that I believe will dictate how successful we will be in this all-important goal of, of taking the, the thing that we have been given and passing the same thing on to another generation. We often talk about Cleveland Baptist Church being the same 20 years from now as it is today, right? We, we often say, we want that. We want that. And we say we want it to be the same thing as it was 30, 40 years ago. Well, how can we best set ourselves up for success in order to achieve this goal? I believe there's three follow-up thoughts that Paul gives here, and I want to share them with you, and then we'll be done tonight. Number one, if we're going to, if we're going to accomplish this, if we're going to give to our children and to our grandchildren the same thing that we were given, number one, we're going to have, we're going to have to endure hardness. Amen. Endure hardness. Now look in verse number three. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. It was the fall of 1914. This war was different from those that had come before. The reason was the invention of the machine gun, as well as other high-powered weapons. These things meant that armies could no longer charge their foes without suffering mass casualties. And so, as Allied forces beat back the German army, the Germans dug in, literally. The earth protected them, allowing them to hold their ground. The Allied forces realized they couldn't advance, so they dug in too. What began with small foxholes, bunkers, and ditches developed into 35,000 miles of trenches that crisscrossed war-torn Europe. Offering protection from enemy fire, these trenches stalemated many battles, sometimes for years. The longer the army stayed, the deeper, longer, and more secure their entrenchments grew. Knowing the enemy bunker lay as close as 50 yards away, soldiers learned to lie low in the trench. Leaving their bunker, peeking over the top, could well be their last move here on this earth. 
Barbed wire stretched across the tops of bunkers and through the land between no man's land. Snipers found vantage points from which they could shoot at soldiers daring to move out of their hole. Advancement was almost, almost impossible. Bunkers grew in sophistication, but most of their conditions were detestable. Some soldiers drowned in the mud. Some died of disease. Some lost feet due to trench foot. Many died from bullet shells or poison gas. All suffered from trying to figure out what to do with sewage, dead bodies, flies, and rats. Still, if you were in World War I, hunkering down in a bunker, trench, or foxhole might give you the best chance of survival. You could lob grenades and stick your gun over the top while keeping your head low. The problem is that if someone with a better view wasn't giving you an idea of what was going on, you couldn't leave your bunker until the other side surrendered or died. Even then, you may have felt safer staying right where you were. I read that earlier this week, and I thought to myself, we, most of us, know nothing of that type of life. We've been so blessed, haven't we? And yet young men, maybe in some cases young women in the early 1900s, left this land and they crossed a world and, and they traveled to other places and they found themselves in such dangerous conditions as soldiers, listen, as soldiers in the United States Armed Forces. I think we kind of get an idea from reading that of just, of just how they had to endure hardness. If they were going to survive, if they were going to get home and see their family again, they're going to have to put up with some pretty awful conditions John Hawkins said in his book, 101 Things All Young Adults Should Know, he said this, if success were easy, everybody would do it. Listen, life is hard. And because life is hard, you can be certain that success in life is even harder. In other words, to make something good out of this mess of a world that we're living in is going to require us to work really, really hard at it, to put up with some things that maybe are not all that easy to put up with. I I think what we're trying to hint at is exactly what the Apostle Paul was saying to Timothy. Listen, if you're going to get this job done, if you're going to take what you have been given and you're going to give the same thing to the next generation and it's going to survive and it's going to thrive, then in order for that to happen, you are going to have to endure hardness as a good soldier somewhere along life's way Christians were duped into thinking that the Christian life should be easy and fun over and over again the Bible paints a far different picture I mean in this very book alone would you look in chapter 1 and verse number 8 he says there, he says, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. Listen, in order to do the gospel work that God has given us to do, there are some afflictions that are associated with it. Would you look in chapter 3? Look in verse number 10. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. Notice verse 11, persecutions afflictions which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Can we just acknowledge that to hand off the same church, the same church that we were handed, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. It's going to require us to endure some hardness. It's going to require us to maybe endure some disappointments, some frustrations, maybe even, maybe even some offenses. You, say, you know, I'm just going to keep my head down. 
I, 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 that, you know, that was hurtful what that person said or what that person did, but I'm a soldier. I'm just trying to survive. You know, I might get to a point where I'm thriving, but right now, I'm in the foxhole. And I'm, I'm dug in in this trench, and I'm not moving, and I'm not leaving. God has called me here, and I have a job to do. And if I'm going to get this job done, I'm going to have to endure hardness. You might have to overlook some offenses. You might have to smile through some of your pain. You for sure are going to have to stop fighting with members of your own army so that you can engage with the real army, the real enemy. And you're likely going to have to surrender some of your rights and conveniences in order to be successful. I'm thinking to myself how many of those men in those foxholes would have thought to themselves, sure be nice to be sitting in my easy chair back home. Sure be nice to be sleeping in my bed in my bedroom. That wasn't an option, was it? No, no, they were at war. They were going to have to endure hardness if they were ever going to leave that place. Get those thoughts out of their mind and just, uh, just dig in and understand I'm here for the long haul. If I expect to survive, I'm going to have to fight, and I'm going to have to fight diligently. I say that if we have any hope of giving our children the same thing we were given, we're going to have to endure hardness. But notice there's a, second, there's a second thing we're going to have to do. If we're going to take this, the thing that we've been given and we're going to give it the same thing to the generations coming behind us, not only must we endure hardness, but number two, we must avoid entanglements. Avoid entanglements. Would you look in verse number four? No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. I was going to show this video tonight, but I, I thought it, you know, I don't know. I wasn't sure it was going to work. But I, I was watching a young man who was running in a race, and he was leading in the race. And as he came around the corner on the stretch run on this particular track that he was running in, somebody was doing something with a pole vault, and something snapped. I don't exactly know what it was. I couldn't quite figure out what it was. But anyways, the thing snapped where the guy was in the middle of the infield there, and the guy's running around the track, and the thing snapped, and it, and it catapulted itself into the, into the racetrack where this young man was running, and his, his feet got tangled up in it. And, and he, he didn't fall, but it tangled him to the point where the other guys that were coming behind him were able to pass him and they were able to win. In fact, it was, it was so funny. You could probably even see it uh, if you go online. But, but one of the, the guy that passed him actually ended up running the race. He's running and he's thinking to himself, I'm never going to win. This thing snaps. This guy's legs get tangled up in it. He passes him by and the guy, the guy that's passing him lets off like a little smirk. Like he, he realizes, I would have never been in this position if this guy didn't get tangled up in this thing. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And I thought about showing it to you tonight and I just decided not to. I don't, I don't know why. But anyways, I'm describing it for you. Hopefully that'll be good enough. And maybe some of you go on a journey to, to, to try to find that. But you know, if we're going to be successful in war, if we're going to be successful in war, we're going to have to avoid some entanglements. Isn't that what happened with David? You remember the story? There in 1 Samuel 17, he put on Saul's armor and he said, I, I can't wear this. I haven't proven it. I'll get down there and I'll, I'll trip my way through and I, I won't be at my best. I'd rather go with, I would rather go with no armor on than go with armor that I haven't proven. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I, I, if I'm going to be successful, I have to avoid entanglements. Thomas Guthrie said this, if you find yourself loving any pleasure better than your prayers, any book better than the Bible, any house better than the house of God, any table better than the Lord's table, any person better than Christ, any indulgence better than the hope of heaven, take alarm. 
You know what he's saying? He's, he's saying, listen, those things entangle. And when we begin to love those things more than we love God and his word and what he's called us to, he says this, he says, watch out. You're in danger of being entangled. And no man that warreth and is successful, he's gonna fight and he's gonna fight the good fight of faith and he's gonna be successful. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. Well, you know, you know that Jim Elliot said similarly. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, if you're gonna, if you're gonna be successful, you're gonna have to avoid entanglement. You're gonna have to give some things up. But by giving those things up, you're gonna gain some things that can never be lost. Treasure laid up in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. I suppose we see a real life example of entanglement in this very book. You're here in 2 Timothy. Would you look in chapter four? Would you look in verse number 10? Look what Paul writes. Demas hath forsaken me. Why? Because he got entangled. What did he get entangled with? Having loved this present world and has departed into Thessalonica. Listen, if we're not careful, we can develop such a love for this world that it entangles us. If you're going to be an effective soldier, you're going to have to release yourself from anything that could slow you down and entangle you. I... Um, came across this quote. It says this, it is well remarked by uh, Gr- Grotius on this passage that the legionary soldiers among the Romans were not permitted to engage in husbandry or farming, merchandise, mechanical employments, or anything that might be inconsistent with their calling. Just this past Friday, I was on the phone with a pastor in Jacksonville, North Carolina. And he pastors in Jacksonville, North Carolina, just outside of a major uh, military base. And I don't remember the name of it at this point in time, but his church is primarily, he said, the average age of my church is in their 30s, mostly Marines and, and the soldiers there in the United States Armed Forces. And we were talking, and he said, he said you know, I want you to really pray. He said, we're, uh, we're, we're, we're really locked for space. He said, we, God's been very, very good to us. I think when we got there, they ran 50. They run about 180 now. And, and they're just out of space. And he said, I just really want you to pray that God would provide us with a building or do something unusual to take care of this need. And, and, uh, and, then, he said, and then he said something to this effect. He said, my people, they're given everything that they have. But he said, they're, most of them are soldiers. And he said, because they're soldiers, they really can't pick up extra work on the side. The military doesn't allow them to do that or maybe there's not enough time to do something like that and so they're basically most of them are living on pay of the U.S. military and I was reminded of this thought the U.S. military gets it don't they they understand that in order to have an effective military these these young men and these young women they have to avoid entanglements they cannot allow themselves to, to be a soldier, you know, nine to five, but in the evening, I'm, 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 I'm doing this, or I'm doing that, or on the weekends, I've got this going on, or that going on. You know, my whole focus, my whole attention has to be on the fact that I am a soldier. And can I say that God's word proclaims the same thing? God is looking, he is looking for soldiers who will devote themselves entirely to this cause. Why? Because we're in a battle. And if we're going to avoid being a casualty, we're going to have to avoid entanglements. There's a third and final thing. And that is this, number three, compete lawfully. Compete lawfully. Look in verse five. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. On October 1st, 1961, Roger Maris, a baseball player with the New York Yankees, hit his 61st home run of the season. 
It was also the final day of the season. The season would end that day. And he became the first player in baseball history to hit more than 60 home runs in a season. Prior to that, the record had been held by a name most of us are familiar with, Babe Ruth, who hit 60 home runs in the year 1927. Maris's record would stand from 1961 all the way until the summer of 1998. Some of you remember that summer. I remember it well as a sports fan. Because two men in the, in the National League of Major League Baseball were competing to see who would become the new home run king. Their names were Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. Mark McGuire played for the St. Louis Cardinals. Sammy Sosa played for the Chicago Cubs. And both of these men, both of these men would take a record down that had lasted for 37 years. In that year, 1998, Sammy Sosa would hit 66 home runs. And Mark McGuire would become the new home run king and he would hit 70 home runs. A, a record that lasted 37 years. Now, now listen, listen. The, the record that Mark McGuire, Mark, Mark McGuire set in 1998 would last only another three years. Because in the year 2001, another man came along. His name was Barry Bonds. And he would hit 73 home runs in a single season. He not only would break the all-time single-season home run record, but he would also break the all-time career home run record set by Hank Aaron, who finished his career by hitting 755 home runs. Bonds would finish his career by hitting 762 home runs, or seven more than Hank Aaron hit. Some of you have already checked out on me. I know you have. But just bear with me, because I love sports, and this is, this is I, lived, I lived through this. I enjoy this. Now, here's, here's, what I want, here's what I want you to think about. Depending on who you speak with, there is an asterisk next to Bonza's records. And here's the reason why. Because it is well known, it is well known that Barry Bonds hit all of these home runs while under the influence of performance-enhancing drugs, things known as PEDs or steroids. And while Bonds was a prolific baseball player, one of the best of all time, even without, even without PEDs, he would have been one of the best players of all time. He today, listen, today he remains outside of baseball's Hall of Fame. Why? Because he refused to compete lawfully. In other words, he cheated. He took a banned substance, he put it into his body, and he went out and he competed, and it gave him an advantage. It gave him an edge over everyone else that had competed throughout baseball history fairly so that the numbers are sort of muddied. Well, yeah, he hit 762 home runs, but would he have hit that many had he not been under the influence of PEDs? 73 home runs, that's incredible. To hit 73 home runs in 162 ball games. No one has ever done anything like that. But would he have hit that many if he would not have been under the influence of performance-enhancing drugs? Can I say that in the work of the Lord, there's no need to cheat. There's no need to manipulate. There's no need to coerce or to control. I'm saying, listen, get out on the battlefield and fight with all your might, but play by the rules. Amen. Do it the right way. Compete lawfully. Why do we look back fondly on our church's history? Well, I think primarily because so many of the people who served in this place, listen, that's not to say that there weren't inconsistencies in their lives. There's inconsistency in everybody's life. Doesn't mean that they ever, every time they did everything just the right way. But I think the totality of their lives says, listen, they competed lawfully. 
They died and they went home to be with the Lord. In, in many respects, listen, there's no asterisk next to their name. Now you might, you might think of a run-in you had with a Roy Thompson or a Bob Folger or somebody along the line, which like, you know, they, you know, they weren't, you know, they weren't right in this particular area. But the totality of their lives is they 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 fought the, the they fought the the fight and they finished the race well, didn't they? And we could talk about a hundred other men, women, probably, probably much more than that, of people who do just the same. They served the Lord with their lives and they competed lawfully. So that I'm sitting here and I'm saying, you know. Well, of course I want to continue. Of course I want to take what they've given to me. Because what they did, what they, what they had was real. Because I saw it change their life. And because I know that it was the real deal, I saw them up close. They competed lawfully. These men, and many other like them, many women like them as well, they died. And though they weren't perfect, they leave behind a legacy of faithfulness and integrity. And we stand in their place. And here's why we do. First and foremost, because of the Lord and the changes he's made in our lives. But we do because we saw something in them that was worth emulating. And Paul says to Timothy, he says, listen, you've got a job to do, but you'll never get the job done. You'll never get the job done unless, first of all, you endure hardness as a good soldier. You'll never get the job done unless you avoid entanglements Don't love anything more than you love God and more than you love his word and more than you love his work. And then thirdly, you'll never get the job done unless you compete lawfully. So I stand here in this room tonight, I look at a congregation that there's old people in here and there's young people alike. We're understanding that, listen, one of these days, one of these days, you're gonna get the news that I have died. One of these days, I might get the news that you have died. Here's what, here's, here's what I want. I want my faith to live on so that 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50 years, if the Lord hasn't returned, and I honestly believe he's going to, but if he hasn't returned by that point, guess what? There's somebody standing here in the same way that I've stood here on Sunday nights and preached God's word. There's somebody standing here preaching from the same book that I'm preaching to you from. They're preaching the same message that I preached. They're doing the same things that we have done as a church, as a congregation now for 64 plus years. Why? This is the pattern, the same. Why did we do what we did this morning? Because we wanted to get the gospel out. Because we wanted people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I say it's, it's not a friend day thing, it's an everyday thing. May God help us, may God help us to be faithful. Take the things that we have learned, that we have confirmed and that we have embraced. Define faithful men and invest in those faithful men so that they can take that same message to people you and I will never meet. And if we're gonna, if we're gonna keep this thing going, it's because we endure hardness, avoid entanglements, and because we compete lawfully. Our heads